Well, hey, it's good to see everybody. Um, if you're brand new, you just walked in. My name's Andy. This is my buddy Tanner. We lead Tandem here at uh, the church. Yeah, we're going to be teaching Tandem. What were you going to say? Tandy. Tandy. Explain Any, it later. Anyhow, um, last week, two weeks ago, we talked about the fruit of the gospel, in the, not the fruit, the root of the gospel in the Old Testament, and then last week Tanner taught um, what the root of the gospel is in the New Testament, and how it's not two different stories, but it's God's one continual story from Genesis, the whole way through the fathers, the whole way through the prophets, the whole way through the nation of Israel until the coming of the Messiah, and then Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And that takes us up till today, where we're going to be looking at the fruit of the gospel. And um, what I'd like you to do, as Tanner and I teach this evening, is ask yourself, do I have fruit? Which, which tree am I? Am I a dead tree with no fruit? Or am I a tree that has fruit? We're going to be looking at six things in the book of 1 John that every Christian should have. And as we go through them, check them off your list. And I hope it brings, um, I hope it brings you assurance if you're a believer. And if you're not a believer, I hope it brings you to come to know the Lord. Um, three summers ago, I was um, shoeing horses, just kind of working, and uh, man, I, I got smacked with a summer of doubt. And this question kept coming into my mind. Can the Lord save a sinner like me? Like, does he know what I've done? And that's what my heart was telling me. What do you do? How many of you have ever been there where you're like, am I a Christian? I'm bad. I'm not that good of a guy. Could the Lord, have you ever been there? How many people here have ever doubted? Yeah. It's all right. The question is, is what do you do with your doubt? See, there's a pendulum. I believe Christians are in this pendulum. And you either wrestle with doubt and you need to hear the truth. I need to teach my heart the truth. person who has been forgiven much, loves much, Andy. Where my sin abounds, grace abounds even more, Andy. I needed to hear that. And then there's the other end of the pendulum. And Tanner mentioned this last week when you said, um, how many people, if I were to go up to you and say, how do you know you're a Christian? And you would say, well, I prayed a prayer. <laughs> I walked an aisle. I was at camp one year working, and we had a speaker come up, and um, he gave the illustration that Jesus needs to be in control of your life like a bus driver. This is to a bunch of 7 to 11-year-olds. And then he said, um, how many people want Jesus to be your bus driver? And all 120 of them raised their hands because bus drivers are cool when you're 7 to 11. And I wonder if I was to ask one of them now, and they'd probably be your age, if I was to say, how do you know that you're, a, you're born again? Would they say, well, when I was eight, I was at a camp, around a campfire, 
And I came forward and I said, I want Jesus to be my bus driver. You see, what we do is we, we use cliches and Christian lingo. And I know what you mean when you say, I asked Jesus into my heart. I know what you mean. But what I'm worried about is that you don't know what you mean. And your faith is in a phrase or a prayer. And Tanner, I think you mentioned it last week, you don't find any of that anywhere in Scripture. So we're going to look at this evening, and I hope that you find either, if you are wrestling in doubt, that the Word comforts you, and you see fruit, and you say to my heart, see, this is what is true heart. Or if you're like, yeah, I'm a believer, you look at the Word and you say, wait a second, there's no fruit. Um, We're going to be looking at 1 John the whole evening. Go ahead and turn turn there. We're going to be flipping back and forth. We have six things, and Tanner and I are going to be flip-flopping the teaching back and forth, too. You know, the book of 1 John was written by Christ's disciple, John. It was written to the church at Ephesus. And Ephesus, at this time in history, was, was the center of thinking. It's the library, it was the classroom, it was the seminary, it was, if you, it's where the talk happened. And at that time, there was a, um, a very popular subject that had come up called Gnosticism. And it was a teaching by Plato. And what it was doing is it was dividing up the spirit and the flesh And there was this kind of like this dualism. And the spirit was a good thing. The spirit is that inner light that's down deep inside of us, which they said is a good thing, which we all have. And then the flesh is kind of an evil thing. And what that did is it led, and people, they took that teaching, people in the church took the teaching of the world and they brought it into church doctrine. Don't we do that all the time? We see what the world has and we go, that makes sense. But don't you remember what God said? That the wisdom of the world, it's foolish to God. And they took that wisdom and they brought it into the church and they said, wait a second. If flesh is bad, then what do we do with Jesus come as a man? He must not have been a man. He must have only been a spirit. Well, that ruins the atonement because my problem is a man problem. It's a sin problem, and I owe God my life, and I can't pay that debt. And if Jesus was not a man, then he didn't pay the debt for mankind. It undermines the whole atonement. The second thing they did, first they changed God, (laughs) They degotted God. The second thing they did was they said, because um, the spirit and the flesh are separated, we can indulge in the flesh, and it won't affect the spirit. In other words, I can do whatever I want to do, and it won't affect my salvation. Does that sound familiar? Or they went to this to the other extreme, which is, I can abuse the flesh. I can beat my wife. I can beat my children. I can be um, cruel, angry, steal, whatever, but it doesn't affect my spirit. See, what they did is they changed God 
They lied about him by taking this false philosophy. And now we have the opportunity to do whatever I want. And you think about it, and I see that everywhere I look. If I change God, or if I get rid of God, that's good, because now I'm God. I can do what I want. And that left the church at Ephesus with this pendulum problem. Because the believers in Ephesus, they're wrestling with doubt now. What is the true gospel? Did Jesus come in the flesh? Or is that all made up? And how should I live my life? Can I, how should I live? Can can I actually indulge in the flesh and be okay? And they lived in doubt or they lived in false assurance. Well, they just lived however they wanted to and they're like, hey, it's fine. And into that context, John writes. He starts out here in 1 John 1. That which was from the beginning which we have heard. He was more than a spirit. I heard him. Which we have seen. He's more than a spirit. I saw him, John says. Which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested. It was seen. Do you see what John is doing? I love this. Because you have all these young younger generation and they're coming up with these new philosophies and all of a sudden John steps on and he's like guys I touched him he's actually he actually was a man God did become flesh you are going to have to abandon those false philosophies or you abandon the gospel turn to first John 5 13. This is going to be kind of our, um, maybe a theme verse for tonight. One of the things that I love about the Lord is that he doesn't keep secrets. If you're doubting, Luke, what was that verse you shared with us last Sunday? My people, Isaiah 4, 6, my people perish. Why? Why is it, Luke? Because of a lack of knowledge. If you're doubting, you need to know God's word. God has something to tell you. 1 John 5.13, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. What? What does it say? What does it say? Tell me. That you may know. That's good. I want you to know. So I've written these things, John said. So we're going to look at six things. The first one we'll look at is um, 1 John 5, 1. Just a little verse there. It says, um, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves him, who begot, also loves him who was begotten of him. And I want to focus on that first little verse, first little section there. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ. If you believe Jesus is the Christ, you are born of God, John says. What does that mean to believe Jesus is the Christ? This may sound silly, but did you know that Christ is not Jesus' last name? 
It's not, it's not like Andy Gerlach, Jesus Christ. And Jesus' last name isn't Nazareth either, either. That's where he's from. Christ is who he is. What is, what is tangled up in that word Christ? A lot. Christ, you could, you could, Christ means the coming one, the anointed one, the Messiah, the one who can save, the one that we looked at that God talked about in Genesis, and he said, his foot will crush your head, Satan, the seed of the woman, the one that we have been waiting for the whole way from Genesis, the whole way through Adam, Isaac, Jacob, and so forth. And the prophets talked about, and then he came, and he fulfilled the prophets. And then he died. And Jesus said, unless a seed falls to the ground, unless that seed falls to the ground and dies, it just remains a seed. But if it falls to the ground, you know what happens? You get a tree. <laughs> What's that tree look like? It looks like salvation. It looks like the family of God. It looks like the church. Man, that's awesome. I want to I show you a verse in 1 John, and it's like the gospel in a nutshell. Um, let's go to uh, 1 John 2, 7 through 10. And ten, I want to ask you if you have this fruit. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that, not that we loved God. It's not of me, but that he loved us. It's his story. It's his plan. And what did he do? He sent his son to be die someday. But when you're born of God, Jesus says, you're my sheep, and I don't lose any of my sheep. Um, a believer who believes in the Savior, even in times of doubt, if you said, try to leave. Remember what Jesus said to Peter? He said, Peter, are you going to go too? And Peter said, where am I going to go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. I've got nowhere else to go. A believer believes that. I've got nowhere else to go. I can't look to myself. I look, I look to religions. They don't make sense. They're lies. I look to a higher power. What does that mean? Christ, where else do we go? Do you have that fruit? Tanner, why don't you take it over? You take uh, a couple other ones. Thanks, buddy. Yeah. It reminds me of a sermon I was listening to a couple of years ago where the preacher made a bold claim. And anytime someone says something in a, in a dogmatic or in an absolute way, my ears perk up. And yours should too. And he said this. He said, I believe the greatest gift outside of salvation that a Christian can receive is a real biblical assurance. And that stuck with me. Because like many of you, uh, there's been times in my life where I've doubted but to have real, true biblical assurance is one of the greatest gifts, if not, in this man's opinion, the greatest gift. So that's the golden knight. There's four categories. 
that Andy talked about. Either you're here tonight and you are a true believer and you are struggling and you do not have genuine biblical assurance. Or you're here tonight and you are a goat. That is to say, you are not born again and your assurance is false and it's fake and it's been given by man and not by the word of God. Or you're here and you know you're not a believer and therefore you don't have assurance or you're a believer and you're here and you know and you rest in Christ because you know he's your savior and so you have biblical assurance. This is a sensitive topic, isn't it? It's always sensitive when we talk about these kinds of things. Uh, when I bring these things up with other believers, I often hear and overwhelmingly one thing comes out. What do you suppose it is? Why are you judging me? You don't know my heart. Remember there's a fellow on the team and he had tattooed on his uh, chest that said, only God can judge. That's a mechanism that goes up. Why are you judging me? And people know well Matthew 7, 1, where it says, judge not lest ye be judged. What they don't know well is what that scripture is talking about. Christ harshly and strictly and blatantly condemns self-righteous outward judgment, hypocritical sorts of judgment. But he says again in John seven twenty four, he says this, Do not merely judge by outward appearance, but make a righteous judgment. Make a real judgment. So Andy and I aren't here to try and peer into your souls. We're well aware that the Lord knows your heart, but we are here to help show you what God's word says about your heart and about your life. We're here so, we, in fact, we've been praying that you would have great joy. I've seen two things that people have studied First John. One, this, they're a true believer and they rest in that and they find great joy joy in that as they study the scriptures and go, Lord, you really have caused me to be born again. The second is this, great terror. Because as they read through the scriptures, they go, these things are not true of me. I've never really been born again. And some of you ought to have great terror tonight as we talk about these things. But let me tell you, if you have great terror and great conviction over sin, God can and will cause you to be born again. You believe in him, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. So the question tonight is not, do you believe, but how do you know that you believe? How do you know that you've truly believed in Christ? I'm going to talk about uh, a test. There's three tests outlined in the book of 1 John. There's a moral test, a social test, and a doctrinal test. And you just touched on a doctrinal test. Do you believe, do you know that Christ is the Son of God? Here's a moral test, or a better way to say it, maybe an obedience test. The first one is habitual sin. Habitual sin. I want you to go to 1 John chapter 3 and read with me there, starting in verse 4. 1 John 3, verse 4. It says this, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared, that's a capital H, he, Christ, appeared in order to take away sins, and in him, capital H, there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. 
No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. They say a preacher's primary job is to read a text and to say, this is what it means. Unfortunately, tonight, John could not be more black and white. John draws stark contrasts all throughout his epistle. He contrasts so well light and darkness, sin and righteousness. John doesn't need much explaining. John's so black and white. That's one of the reasons I think his letter was so helpful for me. If one of Jesus' primary reasons for coming to earth was to take away sin, then the idea that one of his servants, one of his children, could live in sin is absolutely inconsistent. It just doesn't make sense. And John brings that out. He says, Jesus' reason, one of the primary reasons he came to earth was to destroy sin. Therefore, if you're abiding in sin, if you walk in sin, if your lifestyle is sin, you're not in him. Who does he say you are of? It's another black and white one. You're of Christ, you're of God, or you're of the devil. You make a practice of sinning, and the word says that you're friends with the devil. If you're born of God, you don't practice sin. Look at 1 John 5, verse 18 with me. Go a couple chapters over, 518. It says this, We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who is born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. The idea that someone who is united with Christ, living a lifestyle of disobedience, is an utter contradiction. It just doesn't make sense. John says that it cannot be. It's not that it may be or sometimes will be. It's that it doesn't. Now, surely John's not claiming sinless perfection here, is he? No. How do we know that? Well, in 1 John, in in his first chapter in verse 8, he says this. He says, if anyone says he's without sin, he's a liar. None are without sin. None have loved God perfectly. So no one is without sin. But what he's talking about here is a lifestyle, a walk. And the word walk literally means to walk around or walk about. How you live, how you walk, how you breathe. You don't walk in sin if you're a believer. True believers always confess sin and they're sensitive to their sin. That's why Proverbs twenty-eight thirteen says, Whoever conceals... His transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. So here's the question. Do you practice sin? Is the theme and direction of your life one of rebellion and disobedience? If so, you may be in very great danger sitting in the pew here tonight. John's a good transitioner. He's a good contraster. But uh, so was Paul. He said this, you're either slaves of sin or you're slaves of righteousness. Light or dark, God or devil. And John goes and makes a point that in God there's no darkness. That's why light can't dwell with darkness. It can't have genuine fellowship with darkness. Here's the second test, another moral test. I stated the first in the negative. Someone who's truly born of God, that is to say he's born again. You remember John 3, 3, no one goes to the kingdom of God unless he's Born again, here's the second, I'll state it in the positive, habitual obedience, habitual obedience. First John 2, 29, 
If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born again. Okay, look at that. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born again. Now, John's not just talking about an act of obedience, a monetary act. He's talking about a lifestyle or a spirit or an attitude of obedience, one that permeates the life of the being. There are many moral people, aren't there? I mean, we go and we can look around the world and find moral people in many other religions and those who say they have no religion. There are nice people in the world. Are there not? I know nice people. I know no good people. I've not met a good people, a person. And if I look into my heart, I will see that I am not a good person. There are many nice people, but there are only some righteous people and those who have been made righteous by the blood of Christ. Uh, Again, I want to... Just, I want you to be clear that, that John's not talking about outward morality. It's not talking just about uh, outward lifestyle or things that are going on. In fact, Jesus says this in Matthew twenty three twenty seven. He condemns the Pharisees. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. It's a pretty good picture, isn't it? Jesus was a master illustrator. A pearly white tomb that is shiny and bright and beautiful. And on the inside are dead man's bones. Not that kind of obedience. Jesus says the the mouth is an overflow of the heart. So what's on the inside will come out. 2 Corinthians 7.10 For godly grief or godly sorrow produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief or grief that is according to the world produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation or holy anger, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourself innocent in the matter. See godly sorrow that leads to repentance leads to a lifestyle of obedience and grief over sin and habitual obedience. John Newton said it this way, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world, but, but, but still I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. Jesus says there will be genuine growth if you're a believer. Take the parable of the seeds in Luke 8.15. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold fast, and in an honest good heart, bear fruit with patience. True seeds in good soil will bear fruit. Why does it bear fruit? Because it's a tree. Why does it bear figs? Jesus says, because it's a fig tree. That's what fig trees do. Okay? John uses the word walk, and here's the idea. If I was, uh, how many of you have seen the Polaroid pictures out there on the board? Yeah, a lot of you guys up there with goofy-looking faces and all kinds of things going on. That helps us to pray for you and remember who you are and remember that you need help and counseling and guidance. But really, the word walk is this. If you can imagine, I took a Polaroid picture of you, and it's a snap in time. And if I was to follow you around throughout your day and I took a picture of you, I could catch you in sin every now and then, couldn't I? 
and I could compile a photo album of pictures that caught you in sin that would provide plenty of evidence to condemn your soul to hell. Right? But the word walk has a different meaning. See, if I was to follow you around with a video camera and followed your life around, what would be the result? You would see times where you stubbed your toe and said a foul word. You would see interactions with people on the phone or in person that that weren't godly. But by and large, if you're a believer, a lifestyle, if I followed you around with a camera, would present a life of a believer. Does that make sense to you? Do you walk in righteousness or do you walk in sin? That's the idea. Jonathan Edwards said this, The supreme truth, the supreme proof of a true conversion is holy affections, zeal for holy things, and longing after God and personal holiness. Is the theme and practice of your life obedience to God? Does sin genuinely grieve you? Does it mourn you? Do you live a life of obedience or a life of sin? That's the moral test of obedience. How we doing? How we doing? Fruity? Are you encouraged? I hope so. Yeah. Let's keep going. 1 John 3.14. The next thing that John told this church, you can know. 1 John 3.14 says, um, We know that we have passed from death to life. What's he saying? We know we've been born again because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. It's interesting how, like, um, you can say a lot of things. You can say, yeah, I I mean, how many people talk about putting their faith in God, talk about loving God? But, like, the things that Tanner just mentioned and what John is mentioning now, these are things that they come to the surface in life. If you're a believer, you love your brothers and sisters. Who is your brothers and sisters? Other Christians. Those who have the same Father, God the Father, through the Son. Like, you, like we're told to love our enemies, but there is a special camaraderie for believers. Even though they're different than you. Even though they, they go to a different place, if they have a common faith, they're your brother. Even though they have different interests in you, we're so good at loving people who are like us. But the Christian loves people who are like Christ. Big difference. You will marry, you'll probably look for a spouse, and you're going to look for somebody who's like you. Don't do that. Look for somebody who's like Christ. But that's what we do. We try to look for people and we're interested in people who are like us. But the Christian loves people just because that they are my, they're my brother or my sister in the Lord. This is, um, I was compiling verses through the whole book of 1 John. And John says a lot about these tests of what love is and what love is not. I want to show a couple of, of them to you. Um, what love is not, we're very good, I wrote down, at pretending, like we all, we all sit by each other, and how are you doing? I'm doing good, thank you, how was your day? Oh, it was good, house tests, good. But do you love people? Do you love them? That's the question. Um, 
John 2, 9 through 11. He who says he is in the light, he's a believer. He says, yes, <laughs> yes, I'm a child of God, and hates his brother is in darkness until now. And I bet you if I was to ask you, do you hate your brother? You'd be like, are you crazy, Andy? No way. Of course I don't hate my brother. I used to. I remember there was a man, and I was just telling some people this, what happened in my life. There was a man who really rubbed me the wrong way. So I'd avoid him. I'd withhold friendship. I wouldn't talk to him. I'd talk about him. Behind his back, I'd tear him down. And I would say, man, he irritates me. Man, he, he really rubs me the wrong way. You know what the Bible says? Man, I hated him. That's my heart. We love to sugarcoat things, don't we? How can we say, and John says this, how can you say you love God, who you've never seen, when you can't even love your brother, who you see? That's the test of love. Because if, if Rick is my brother then me and him have something in common. You know what it is? It's the Holy Spirit. And if there's division between me and Rick, that is not the fruit of a Christian. Because within the Trinity, of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, there is no division. So how can I say, yeah, I love God, I'm one with God, but yet, my brother, I can't stand him. Let's look at, I want to look at this um, not loving my brother a little bit more, according to what John says. Um, 1 John 3.15. This takes it to the next level. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. <laughs> and you know that no murderer has eternal life now, don't you? See, the truth is, is that hatred in my heart, it's... it's it's murderous intentions in my heart. And Jesus says, if you thought it, if you've looked at a woman with lust, come on now, you've done it in your heart. If you've hated your brother or your sister in your heart, John says, you're a murderer. And you, you know that no murderer is, will inherit the inter, eternal life. Um, he goes on and he gives an illustration. It's in verse 12. Not as Cain who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brother's righteous. What's another word for that? You see, Cain and Abel offered two different sacrifices, and God accepted one because it was obedient, and God rejected the other because it was cursed. And so the, brother, the, the one brother, a seed of envy, popped up in his heart, and he killed his brother. Are you envious of anybody? Are there any of your brothers or sisters who that they have something that you want or that you wish you had, or maybe they don't have something, or maybe they're in a position in life? Maybe they found that person and, you're, and you haven't. Maybe they have that possession. Maybe they're at a place in school where you're not. Maybe the Lord's gifted them in an area where you're not. 
and you're bitter against them? We, we have nice words for those, but John calls it hate. And the Lord says, before you come to the front and you offer anything to God, you go to your brother and you make it right. These are a couple of things that John says, this is not love. Okay, let's flip that around. What is love then? Because love is more than just sitting beside one another and asking nice questions. John's going to raise the bar big time. Um, let's look at uh, 1 John 4.11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. When you realize that God loved me and you know what goes on in your heart and he still loved and sent his son and forgive and has forgiven you and removed that sin and then your brother comes with a, a something a little problem a little something that bugs you and you say I can't forgive him of that John says if God so loved us we also ought to love one another. That should spill over. That, that love, that forgiveness that God has given you, man, that, that should, if you're a believer, that spills over into your brothers and your sisters. If it doesn't, dead tree. The love was never in you. We were just reading this week, and Sarah would know this, I think it's Ecclesiastes. If the cloud ha- is full of water, you know what's going to happen? Water's going to come out. That's my own version of it right there, too. If the tree falls in the woods, guess what? It falls in the woods. If the love is in you, guess what? It's going to come out. But if the cloud don't got water, never had water in it. It's not coming out. Which are you? Are you fruity? Um, let's keep looking. That was a fruity thing to say. Um, 316. By this we know love because he laid down his life for us and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. What does that mean? Should we die for one another? Not necessarily, but there is an element of sacrifice in here. Sacrificial love. Christ died for us. We also ought to make sacrifices for one another. Let me give you an example, John says, 17. But whoever has his world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? Let's say you have a need for money, and I've got a plethora. A plethora? Would you say you have a plethora? There's a quote that just popped into my head. And I'm not willing to give that to you even though I have plenty. John says, how, how, you won't even give the trash of the world to your brother when he needs a little bit? The love of God's not in you. That's convicting. When someone, when, the next time your brother asks for your time, Next time your, your brother asks for a need that he has, and you, say, I, and you have it, and you withhold it, 
Remember this, God withheld nothing from you. He gave it all. And then the last one I want to look at. Um, I think it was Tanner and I's first, it was definitely the first month of working together. And um, I come into the office and uh, Tanner says, can we talk? And I'm like, oh, this looks serious. And he said, um, you, I talked to a young man and I gave him, gave him kind of gave him some guidelines. And then you talked to him and you gave him a different set of guidelines. And I just want you to know that I felt like you undermined me. Do you remember that? Really? I sure do. <laughs> I love you. <laughs> and that, you know what? That's the point. Do you love that much? Look at 1 John 5.16. If anyone sees his brother sinning, a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask. You know what that word means? He will beg. He will crave. Brother, turn from your sin. Do you love a person enough that if you see them going down a path towards sin, what about a little, little sin? No such thing. There's no little sin. There's no little darkness when it comes to holiness. Do you love a person enough to say the hard things to them? Because here's... If my son was running towards the road and a truck was coming, if I love him, I will yell his name and I'll say, get out of the road now, and I'll, and I'll be harsh. But faithful are the wounds of a friend, Proverbs says. But if I don't love him because, you know, in this day and age, we don't yell. And what if, someone, what if one of the neighbors heard me and they thought I was like a bad dad? You know who I'm loving? I'm loving me. Because I'm afraid what others might think of me. You see, if you love somebody, you'll do the hard things. If, you won't, if you're not willing to do that, you know who you love? You're, you love yourself. It's kind of revealing, isn't it? So how are you doing? Are you fruity? <laughs> okay, anyways. Okay, last one for me. Last one for me. First John 5.18. Turn there. I'm going to keep using it now. 1 John 5, 18, we know that whoever is born of God does not sin. Tanner covered this. Whoever is born of God does not sin. Andy, are you perfect? Absolutely not. I love how Pastor Brian says it. Christians aren't sinless, but they do sin less. That kind of really wraps that in a nutshell. But he who has been born of God, and this is where we're going to look at, keeps himself. He keeps himself. Um, if you were at the, uh, the ugly sweater party right before Christmas, a young gentleman came up to me, and he gave me his Xbox, and he gave me his flat-screen TV, and he said, can you keep these for me? Because I spend way too much time. And so they've been sitting in my office till this evening when he took them back. And he's ready to... He's grown in the Lord, I trust, and he's seen fruit. That word keeps himself. You know what that means? It means to keep in view. It's like a big brother keeping his eye on his little sister to make sure she doesn't get hurt. It's you keeping your eye 
on your testimony, on, on yourself, that you don't go someplace where you shouldn't go. Guys, when I go to the grocery store and I check out and I know those stinking magazines, you know what I do? I keep myself. I am intentionally, I keep my eyes straight ahead because I don't want to see that junk. Maybe by keeping yourself, you need to avoid certain people because every time you're around them, you fall into sin. Maybe there's certain hallways, certain rooms at MSU where you shouldn't go because of what's posted there. Maybe there's certain dormitories that you know if you go there, you are inviting temptation. You need to keep yourself. Are you wise? The big idea is are you careful to keep yourself away from that which would cause you to stumble? Are you quick to repent, quick to confess? Do you keep short accounts? Now, let me ask you this. Why do you keep yourself? You know why I keep myself? One, I hate sin. Man, I hate it. Like when I see sin in me, I get angry in my head. When I fall to those little temptations, man, I hate sin. So I keep myself, so I don't go there. Why do I hate sin? Because my Savior died for sin. It was on account of sin that God sent Christ into the world. And I love my Savior. Imagine if Dave was an alcoholic. His kidneys are going bad because of what he's doing. So he comes over to my house one evening and he's like, Andy, I'm, I'm going to die. I'm, I'm a, I have an alcohol problem. My kidneys are going to fail. I don't know what to do. And I cannot find anybody, and I'm on this long list, to get a donated kidney. And then he leaves. And my, my wife and I were talking about it. We're like, whoa, that was heavy. And my wife prays a little bit. And she comes the next day and she goes, I want to give Dave a kidney. And I'm like, really? Yeah. Yeah. So we invite Dave back over and we're like, Dave, you're getting my wife's kidney. (laughs) So the operation happens. The doctor gets the kidney and my wife gets an infection and she dies. But the kidney's saved. And Dave has life. Dave gets that kidney and he lives. And I go up to Dave again and I go, Dave, man, how you doing? Okay, what's up? I've been drinking again. What? What are you talking about? Don't don't you know? You see, God gave more than a kidney. He gave his whole son. And I say to myself, Andy, what are you doing? Don't you know? Don't you, don't you understand the cost? You see, a Christian hates sin because he gets the cost. If you just don't keep yourself and you just continue, 
John says, you're not a believer because you don't get it. You don't get the cost. Christian, keep yourself. Another fruit. (laughs) Do you see that in your life? Tanner, why don't you close us up with the last? You bet. Here's one more. Victory over the world. A true believer, someone who's been born again, has victory over the world. Turn to 1 John chapter 5, verses 4 and 5. And here's what it says. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except for the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Now we've covered... I told you at the beginning, there's three kinds of tests. We've covered the moral test. Andy just covered the social test of love, and we're about to hit on the doctrinal test again. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Have you overcome the world by the Spirit that is within you? I thought this quote by J.C. Ra was very insightful, so I wrote it down. I'm going to read it to you. This is a man who has been born again does not use the world's opinion as his standards of right and wrong. He finds no pleasure in the things which seem to bring happiness to most people. To him they seem foolish and unworthy of an immortal being. Have you overcome the world, or do you look just like the rest of the world? Chapter 2, the same book, verse 15, says this, Do not love the things of the world. Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. There's a verse that Brooke and I are memorizing that has to do with these kinds of things. Overcoming the world. Dying to self. Having the power to overcome. Colossians 3, 5 through 6. I haven't memorized it yet. Put to death, therefore, what is in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry, idolatry. on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. Have you overcome? Here's, here's the passive part. You're born again. God makes you in a new creation. You're familiar with that. Second uh, Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Behold, old things have passed away, new things have gone. So you've got a new life, a new spirit, a new heart. Here's your active part. Put to death, Christian. Put to death the things that are in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion. 1 Corinthians 2.12 Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. You haven't received, if you're born again, a spirit of the world. You've received the Holy Spirit. Capital H, capital S. Holy Spirit of God. God himself. That little idiom that we hear all the time that Jesus is in your heart is just not in Scripture. You just don't see it in, in the Word, and so I'm not sure why we use it all the time. But here's a truth. You do have the Spirit of God inside of you if you have been born again. And the Spirit of God gives freedom, and He gives power. We're going to talk about that more next week. He indwells. And the moment of your conversion, He baptizes you. Okay, and now you can be an overcomer of the world. You have a new spirit, a new nature. There's only so many ways of saying this. This is really, it's black and white. And I wish, man, I wish I would have understood this when I was younger. Because <laughs> that group of people that uh, Andy was talking about that 
the six and seven year olds that made Jesus their bus driver. I was one of those kids. Now I wasn't in the camp that he was in, but uh, I was at a vacation Bible school and the teacher said, I don't even remember what she said, but I could tell it was a very serious and somber moment. Something like, would you like to accept Jesus into your heart? And I looked at my buddy and I said, have you ever did what she's talking about? It's my best buddy. She goes, yeah, man, I do it all the time. I said, all right, I guess I'll do it too. <laughs> there's part of that that's funny and there's part of that that is very, very sad because up until about four years ago, I would have pointed to that time and said, yeah, I'm saved. Why? Because I did what my best buddy was doing, even though I didn't understand anything of it. Okay. James 4.4 4 says this, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So black and white. It's so black and white. Jesus says you can only serve one master. You'll love one and hate the other, or you'll love the other and hate the one. He says it's the world or me. And today we're so caught up in trying to look just like the world to attract the world. But then we use all these means to bring people in, and when they find out we're no different than the rest of the world. Christ says you've overcome the world if you're a true believer. You've overcome it. 1 John two fifteen through 17 touched on this already. I'll start in verse 16. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride in possessions is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And this world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Many will come to him on that day and say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not perform many miracles? And he, I will say to him, this is Jesus speaking, it says, I will say to them, away from me. I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. Who is born again? Those who do the will of God. They abide forever. Why? Because they do the will of God? No, they do the will of God because they're born again. Don't get that order wrong tonight. If you walk away from here going, I just got to be more obedient. I just got to work harder. And you're not born again. You've missed the whole point. You really missed it. You'll do these things because you're a true believer. Now, is there active work involved in that? You bet. You bet there is. But if you work hard at these things and you're not born again, I used to, let me tell you, I used to get so sick of alcohol. I'd go, I'd be hungover. I'd go break open all my beers and pour them down the drink pour them down the sink. And I'd just, I'd say, I'm going to quit. I'm done. Two weeks later, same thing, same thing. I was a whitewashed tomb, just trying to polish up the outside. Listen, tonight is about what Paul exhorts us to do in second Corinthians 13, five. He says, examine yourself, test yourself, or do you not know this about yourself that Christ Jesus is in you unless indeed you fail the test? Uh, I wanted to help you with a visual for the world passing away. So if you could bring that up, real guys, real quick in closing. Uh, since Monday at 8.30 a.m., I started a simulation on my computer. And uh, I started it. And since Monday morning at 8 a.m., there's been about 50,997 births in the U.S. And there's been about 31,626 deaths in the U.S., 
I asked these guys to start this at 7 o'clock tonight. Since 7 o'clock tonight, since we've been here, there's been 635 little babies, okay? 635 births and 445 deaths. The world is passing away. The world is temporary. The world is coming and going. It's here today and it's gone tomorrow. The world and its possessions will pass away, and a true believer has his affections set on what is above, not what is below. 1 John 3.10, see what kind of love the Father has given us. So we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Listen, if you look just like the rest of the world, be very afraid tonight. Now is your time. Repent and turn to God. Be born again. Believe in Christ. Okay, and come out of the world. Come out of the world. Why did Andy and I talk to you guys about these things tonight? Why did we choose this subject? Let me tell you why. Because we love you very, very much. And it's our burden as your leaders and those who pray for you. We want you to know the truth and we want you to know it well. At the beginning, uh, Andy read John 5.18, 1 John 5.18 as a purpose statement. I'm going to read you a similar one. Why did John write these things? He says, these things we write so that our joy may be made complete. Listen, you walk out of here tonight as a true believer, your joy, may your joy abound, may be made complete. If you're not a true believer, talk to us afterwards. I want to talk to you. Someone wants to talk to you. Talk to you about these things as you examine your life. Questions, any of those kinds of things. Okay. Close with a quote from John Edwards. After the uh, Great Awakening, there was they discovered that there's many, many real conversions and there's many, many false conversions. So he wrote a book on it. And this is one of the quotes from it. It says, Assurance is never to be enjoyed on the basis of a past experience. There is need of a present and continuing work of the Holy Spirit in giving assurance. Are you walking with Christ? Do you really know Him? Okay, Let's pray and then we're going to close in singing to our Lord. Father, You are kind and You're so good to give us these words. You instructed Your, your Apostle to write these words uh, so that we may know and he also said that our joy may be complete. And so may we have great joy, those of us who are in Christ tonight. May our joy abound and overflow. May we rejoice that we'll all be someday with you and we can't wait. And Lord, those who are here tonight who have not been genuinely born again, who don't really know you, who have a false assurance, would you so work in their heart, Lord? Would you help them to see and to know and to come to believe in you? Thank you that your word still speaks, that it's alive and active and and pertinent for us. We ask these things and pray these things because of what your son's done for us. Amen.